You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades. Light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to this episode of The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience. And today I'm joined by Nick Horton, former Marine Infantry officer, who's going to be telling us a story about his time as a rifle platoon commander. Nick, welcome to The Spear. Thank you for having me. Before we start, can you tell us a little bit about what led you into the Marine Corps? Uh, ego, mostly, I think. Um, I uh, went to... Fleet Week in San Francisco when I was a young kid and visited an amphibious assault ship and saw the Marines and grew up with a Marine poster on my wall for most of my life. And then in high school, started looking at how I'm going to pay for college and applied for an ROTC scholarship and ended up getting accepted for that. I went to Oregon State University, graduated in 2001 and was commissioned. Went to TBS thereafter and, and became Marine. Was the goal always to be an infantry officer? I, I, over the years growing up, I you know there was times I wanted to be a pilot. I think you know I, I grew up in the Top Gun era. You know, went and, as a kid, saw that movie in the theaters, and you know, so it was always an influence of thinking about being a pilot. Uh, but I think it was really solidified at Oregon State. You know, just the peer group was around there. You know, to see you know, both some senior midshipmen who were you know just very strong leaders and were looking to go Marines, and then some strong. Um, MESEPs, you know, some, some of the sergeants and staff sergeants there. So for the listeners that don't know what a MESEP is, can you explain that briefly? It is a commissioning source program uh, where active duty enlisted Marines can apply for a commissioning program. Uh, I think it's the Marine Enlisted Commissioning Education Program is the acronym stands for. But essentially their job in the Marine Corps, they remain on active duty and their job for four years is to attend one of the universities within the Naval ROTC unit and obtain a college degree and become a commissioned officer in the Marine Corps. So you go to the basic school, you go to infantry officer course, and you check into your first unit, which was 1st Battalion, 5th Marines. And what were your assignments there? Uh, over the course of three and a half years of 1-5, I started off as a rifle platoon commander. And, and then I eventually became a, a cat platoon commander, which is the combined anti-armor tank team. It's the tow and heavy machine gun Humvees, essentially. Uh, and then eventually ended up in the three shot. Uh, over the course of three deployments to Iraq in that time between 2002 and 2005. So the 2002 to 2003 deployment, OIF-1 is what we're going to talk about today, right? Yeah, I think we deployed in early 2003. I joined the unit in June of 2002, and we, I believe we left in February of 2003 for 
So I, I, had a, I had the opportunity and the blessing to have a full workup uh, cycle with my platoon as a rep platoon training uh, with them before the In all of that training workup time, did you know you were going to Iraq or were you still focused on the amphibious mission? Uh, it's funny. We were, we were scheduled to go to the 31st Mew in Okinawa and get on ships out of Okinawa for the entire workup. And we, were, we finally received confirmation that we were not going to the 31st meeting while we were on pre-deployment leave over Christmas. However, the entire time we were training for the 31st meeting, we were being told, you're not going to go. And so we were, we were essentially training for both. And the way our company commander approached it is we did the bare minimum training to, to go to the meeting, uh, which is a boat company that we went to Coronado for a couple of weeks and we did, you know, learned how to ride around rubber zodiacs. But every other ounce of training time was dedicated to attacking fortified positions, urban assaults, things of the like, um, because we were being told both things that we were, we were slated for the MU. But if if we went, you know, if Fifth Marines went to war, we were going with them. February of two thousand and three, you deploy to Iraq with your platoon. Iraq does have two rivers, but you were a boat company. So what was the plan there? Uh, we got an AAVs and we rode an AAVs on um, as part of the biggest traffic jam I've ever been a part of from Kuwait all the way to Baghdad. The le- I guess the, the, the anecdote there is that I did not expect that many vehicles competing for space on, on a highway all moving north. And as a rifle platoon commander, did you have any influence in that or were you just along for the ride? Well, we knew that the regiment would be traveling together. Right, so like along our axis of advance, Fifth Marines had had one of the highways going up, and the Seventh Marines had another highway, and First Marines was talking as well. And we knew that we'd be taking turns as the battalion and the lead of the regiment, and that there was a log train that was going to follow. But it, it, it was just you know every time you thought you might be the lead and you're the point element of the regiment, you know a couple miles up the road you might come around the corner and then there was you know, one a mile long convoy of army bridging assets just pulled over on the side of the road. Right? It's just there was a lot of um, not necessarily knowing where everyone else was in relation to me because I was a rifle something that was my job. Um, but times when you're thinking, okay, I think we're out front, and then you're not, and then tucked in around us doing an amazing job every step of the way was multiple batteries of artillery. Obviously, it was like the logistics train for the regiment was pretty big. And so there's just a lot of vehicles on the highway, and we would leapfrog battalions would take turns being the point element of the regiment, drive forward for the day, and then the next day, another battalion would take the lead. What's going through your head as you're driving north and either encountering Iraqis or encountering army bridging assets on the side of the road? The, well, the, the first day, I mean, we, we, we crossed the border. The night the war started, we crossed the border, you know, and it was dark. Nighttime, uh, we took off. I think earlier than we were planning planning to, because they started launching missiles across the border. And one five was the point element for Fifth Marine regiments crossing the border and the war started. And so that night and the next day, there was, I mean, it was pretty amped up uh, adrenaline. Uh, the adrenaline dump coming off that day was pretty pretty significant. But the morning the war started, we had to make our way to a gas oil separator. You know, basically secure some of these oil assets to keep them from destroying them like they did in the first Gulf War. There wasn't much resistance, but there was what I equate to a drive-by shooting, which killed my fellow platoon commander, Jason Mean. He was the first KIA, first first person killed by enemy fire 
there was a helicopter that crashed the night before it started, but the, the first morning of the war, uh, Lieutenant M. Shane Childers was killed, and he was he was the adjacent platoon commander to me uh, during the, the, attack, the first day of the war. So that day one was, um, you know, it hit home that this wasn't a game. Uh, the second worst thing that could happen just happened. I lost a close friend um, who was my adjacent platoon commander. I was third platoon, he was second platoon after the one part. Um, and it was essentially a drive-by shooting. It wasn't uh, you know, a deliberate attack against a fortified position. It was guys in a vehicle spraying rain as they were trying to get away. Uh, and Shane took one bullet to the belly and unfortunately didn't make it. And so day one, the war became very, very real for us. After that, there was a, a lull uh, for at least my, from my perspective. Right? Everyone has a different viewpoint, but for much of the remaining trip to Baghdad, I, I wasn't involved in any direct skirmishes that I can recall. There were some things around us. There were some things that we were to try and deal with. There were some significant firefights by other companies or other battalions. But from my personal perspective, from, from the first day of the war until April 10th, several weeks later, when we went to Baghdad, there wasn't a lot of actual you know, There was occasional incoming rounds. There was a lot of outgoing artillery. And you heard about a lot of skirmishes, but for me personally, there just wasn't much. And so it was a part of being this convoy, just waiting for when's the next contact going to happen. Because on day one, I realized how quickly it came. What was that anticipation doing to your nerves? I wouldn't say it was it was unnerving. Um, it was just you wanted to get in a fight. You know, you you wanted to you wanted to add value to what we were doing. You wanted to. You know, part part of it was you know they, they lost a good friend. You wanted to you know avenge that to some level or prove that you're worthy and you've done a good job for him, right? And so there were some frustrations there, but at the end of the day, like when you're completely surrounded by a regiment and you all have the same mission, and it's just somebody else is getting in these fights, you, you have to trust that they're doing their job to put a, put the regiment in a better position for the, you know, the next day when it's our turn to take the lead. You know, they have they have set the conditions for us to go go forward and, and keep moving. So you've said three weeks, roughly two and a half weeks, from crossing the LD till you get to the outskirts of Baghdad. Mm -hmm. About what happens when you get to the outskirts of Baghdad? So we we got to I think at the time it was called Saddam City around that area, and on April 9th, two thousand three, if you recall, was when the, the statue was pulled down. I think it was three four and. and but at, at that time, the northwest corner of Baghdad, I'm sorry, northeast corner of Baghdad was still untouched. And, and so we got word that the, you know, the following morning, very early in the morning, we were going to push into the northeast corner of Baghdad to this palace complex. And, and one of the things we were told was, and we think Saddam might be hiding out there. But essentially, it was a, the battalion is going to thrust in with all of its armored vehicles and make a push to this palace where it'll essentially gain a foothold in the northeast corner of Baghdad. And then from there, to the extent we need to push back out and do things and operations, we can. But the first goal was to get there and try and see if Saddam was there, which is, you know, looking, looking back on it, I think everybody attacking the Baghdad was being given orders to go chasing the first Saddam. Uh, but at the time, you, know, like you feel really amped up about that mission, the place Saddam might be. And then from there, it gives us a very, it was a large palace complex with very high walls. It gave the battalion, you know, the ability to then push out into the city as a forward operating base kind of if needed. 
And, and so we got word we're going to do that. And so we spent you know, the better part of the evening developing that plan, communicating that plan. And we had some, I'm not sure if there were special forces, if there were some three-letter agency folks that showed up and said that they're going to come along and, and, and actually take down the building for us. But it was a, you know, one Humvee full of guys, and my, my platoon was tasked to be the following support of those guys. And, you know, silly questions like, you know, in the middle of the night as we're getting ready to go to Baghdad, is like, are we going in the building with NVGs or white light? You know, and keep in mind at this time in 2003, every all of my Marines have iron sights. We, we don't have you no know, scope weapons. We don't have you know the A4 with the, the RCA on it. It's iron sight weapons, and to the extent they have a, fla- a, a flashlight, it may be as big as a maglock. You know, just taped to the weapon. So you know, we're having these silly conversations about white light versus NVGs as we follow these special operators into the building, and it, you know, that never played out. Um, because we had a Britain in an eight-hour running gunfight on two streets of Baghdad. So April 9th, the statue comes down. On that day, is you're northeast of Baghdad. You get the mission. What's going through your head for planning? How are you interacting with your adjacent platoons, your company commander, your platoon sergeant? How's that all playing out in your head? So we had uh, we had set up. The entire way up, every we move forward as north as far as we can, and then we basically set up a, a limited defense, you know, big range of raids, and you know, set up sectors of fire, and then wait till the next day when we take that town and push up again. So we had set up, uh, you know, limited defense in the area we were at when the road came down. That, that was our mission, and so the the leadership was able to collect with the, the company commanders AAB and receive whatever frag order he was able to develop at that point in time, based on the information he had. And this is a this is a battalion attack into the city. And so it's not just, you know, a company size thing. We, we are just one piece of the pie. We had a platoon of tanks with us. There was engineers with the, with the battalion. Uh, each company obviously was mounted up in AEVs. We also had the, the CAT platoon, about 16 Humvees and played machine guns and towed missiles. And so there's a lot of moving elements to this. Uh, but our company was tasked with being in the lead and we were going to make entry, be the first to make entry into the palace, led by tanks. And then I would, my platoon would be dismounting uh, with the, you know, the special folks who they were uh, to go actually clear the main palace building. That that was communicated by the company commander. That was the basic plan. Obviously, he had other tasks for my subordinate platoon commanders. I then took that plan, had a brief moment of time to kind of process and figure out how I want to distribute my forces in terms of assault support security elements for each of my squads, like who's doing what mission, who's going to flow, who's going to flow in first, um, who's going to do what. And then I went, I don't think it, it might have been in the back of my AAV, but as in the back of an AAV, at this point we had to start pushing to the, to the assault position. So we actually picked up and we were mounted for a while. I wasn't able to give my order until we pushed closer to the city and held at a certain point until I believe about two or three in the morning. Uh, but during that time, once we were holding basically on the side of the road, kind of a cigar shaped just defense, um, I pulled my squad leaders into my AAV in the back of my AAV, gave a quick frag order about what we're going to do and, and what the plan is. And so we were already picked up out of our defense, moving into the city by the time I, I actually got a chance to fully brief my, my squad leaders. And I actually have uh, a recording of that. The squad, one of the squad leaders had a little uh, mic recorder, and he recorded part of part of my frag order, part of his frag order to his squad, and then uh, a bit of the action to follow. At this point, we'd uh, just the the final couple of days leading into April tenth. You know, the closer you get to Baghdad, I think the the adrenaline and the anticipation started to build. 
you know, when you're when you're on the main the main freeways and highways south of Baghdad moving north, you know, the main freeways generally like in America they bypass the main parts of the city. The highway will go right through town, but the freeway portion, you know, like the divided divided freeway, will go around the town. Right. And so a lot of what we did was on these main freeways kind of bypassing the towns and you see them and occasionally, you know, skirmishes would arise. But the closer you got to Baghdad, the more these freeways are starting to get integrated into more of an urban area. And, and the more people you're seeing and the closer we get to Baghdad and that's the objective and what's going to happen there. So a lot of anticipation started to build. And I think I'd probably been up for at least two days at this point to perhaps you know the better part of two or three days at this point just because of the anticipation and there's a lot more things that were happening as we got closer even though we weren't necessarily in contact every day there's a lot more things happening the closer we got to Baghdad and it just had, had occupied my time and, and just hadn't slept in a couple of days so I think I sounded really happy. Sitting in the assault position you've briefed your squad leaders how long are you there before you get the move order? I forget um it was at least an hour or so, maybe two. Maybe more. I mean, it's a, that 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 part of the evening, um, I can't recall very good in terms of what time it was. I, I do recall that it was somewhere around I think two or three in the morning that we actually started to make the push, um, and that the further we got actually into the city, the more we started getting shot at. Um, you know, we, you know, we were basically waking people up with the gunfire. And, People are coming to join the fight, which is kind of going on. But as as the sun was coming up, we had been kind of driving around Baghdad and joining gunfight for for a bit of time. And I was actually, you know, candidly, I was I was falling asleep in my AV as we were talking about Baghdad until the gunshot started going off and the adrenaline spike again. And I was like, I was you know sit, sitting there sitting there in the AV in the troop commander seat. Trying to stay awake, trying to think about what we're doing, and, and it's just, you know, you got this the slow, dull hum of the AAV just kind of bouncing around. It's warm, it's hot, and I hadn't slept in a couple of days, and I was doing my best not to fall asleep as we were tacking into the city. And as soon as the gunshots started, how far of a push from the assault position to the palace was it expected to be? Twelve kilometers, maybe. So a good long drive. This isn't, we're going over the next hill. This is, we're going from the outskirts of the city into the center. Yeah. And was, did you have any intelligence about what you were going to find other than allegedly Saddam at the palace? Uh, I could listen, I could listen back to the, that recording. I think I actually talked about, you know, what the ending, what we thought the ending situation was, but we thought, we, we anticipated that, that, you know, whatever holdouts remaining within Baghdad had been pushed into, into our, the area we were going. So you were expecting a fight? Yeah. I mean, we were expecting to get shot at at some point. Exactly how many people, when, where, you know, whether it was going to be concentrated around the palace, whether it was going to be sprinkled throughout, um, how and when that would happen. We, I don't think we had good intel on that. I think we assumed that the closer we got to this palace, the more we would get shot at. The gunshots have gone off. You've woken up. What's the first thing that goes through your mind? Try and try my best to get situational awareness and, and figure out uh, where is the fire coming from? Is it effective? Is it? Uh, keep in mind, our job was to 
push through and get to this palace, right? So like, we're not going to stop and deal with everything along the way. It's we have kind of like a penetration raid essentially. And so if it's if it's not stopping us, then you know, return fire, keep going. There's obviously a ton of radio chatter, so like it's not going to do me any good to get on the net and you know add my two cents. There's you know, the company commanders talking, you know, the, the lead element, platoon commander, um, who's behind the tanks. You know, he, he in my in my opinion had the most important communication piece with the company commander at that point. He's the lead element behind the tanks, and he's the and the, the tank platoon commanders talking to the CEO as well, and them trying to navigate through the city in the dark. Uh, while getting shot at, you know, I, I, there's no reason for me to go on company attack and target for that. I was, I think, th- third in line in, in the company. I think it was first platoon, second platoon, and my platoon. I might have been first, me, then second. Um, and so there's nothing for me to really add value on the map. So just try and maintain my situational awareness and also figure out where we're at and, and try and keep track of where we're at. You know, as I was falling asleep, my goal was to be able to add a... Uh, a printed out eight by ten map book of of Iraq because we had these big map sheets. Then I had to print it out of the entire of the entire you know map sheets of Iraq that we were given. We also had a printed out book in the eight by ten format, but it also had the cities kind of blown up a little bit. And so I had the Baghdad page out, and I'm trying my best to figure out you know where we are. I didn't have a GPS. I didn't have any fancy blue force tracker. I in we're all, as soon as we started getting t- shot at, you know, the tanks had missed a turn. And so we went further than we were supposed to. We had to get in the clover relief and kind of come back around in the battalion and, you know, not shoot out the left side because, you know, the battalion is now passing, you know, one going south, one going north, so to speak, right? Like, um, as we're trying to get back on track. And it was, it was just chaos. But I'm trying to my best to keep my bearings in terms of the decision making. Um, I wasn't... I, I, I wasn't really interested or involved in like I need to get my rifle out, stand up in the TC hatch, and, and trying to turn fire. I thought my role was had a better value add to try and maintain situational awareness where we, where we were, um, and I failed miserably at doing that. Uh, and eventually, eventually, one of our AAVs went down for a brief period of time, and we just had to form a little. You know, kind of circle around it while the while the AV crewmen were repairing it, and the tanks got detached to a uh, Bravo company, I believe it was. And Bravo company continued the push on to this uh, to the palace, and so the Alpha company at that point is no longer the main effort, no longer the uh, the lead element of the battalion. Uh, we're obviously not going to be the first to hit the building. You know, it's it's the sun is starting to come up. That whole white light MVG conversation is now nonsense. Like you know, everything we had talked about is now out the window. And at this point it's we need to get the A V fixed and then we need to link back up at the top. And eventually the A V is fixed and we start pushing again as a company. And the the sector of the city we were in, the essentially the western limit and as you come in from the northeast, the western and kind of southern limit of where we were going to go was a river that cuts through Baghdad. And we, we, weren't, we, we didn't have any op, we didn't have any obligation or need to cross that river, and if we did, we were going to be entering somebody else's AO. And as we were pushing, um, our lead element started across the bridge and, and ended up stopping. And you know, as much as I want to say that I had my situational awareness about me exactly where we were. I was still trying to figure out on the map where we were, but my 
my vehicle had not gotten up onto the bridge yet. And right before the bridge, there was a turnoff for the river road that followed the river. And I heard the company commander trying to tell the lead element or somebody on the net that we need to take the river road. And when I when I heard that, I was able to figure out where we were on the map. I finally figured out where we were on the map. I saw the river because I basically went from the palace south along the river until I saw the bridge. Assumed that that's where we were based on what the company commander said. And I was the only, I was in a position to take the lead based on where my vehicle was parked. When we stopped, we were able to turn to the right, get on the river road, and then assume the lead for the company. And I just said, you know, I, you know, I think I figured what I said on the net, but I was like, I, I see the river road. I'll start pushing there now. And the company reformed behind my vehicle. And I assumed at that point that I knew where we were um, and that this road would take us to the palace based on what the company commander said. And I, and I went with it. Luckily enough, you know, I think, you know, five or six kilometers later, we bumped into the palace. And so it was, you know, based on what he had said on the radio, I was able to figure out where we were and, and it turned out to be right. What happened in those five to six kilometers? I think at that point there was still some sporadic shooting, but it wasn't nearly as much. I mean, right at that, right at that bridge, there was a lot of fire because we stopped, right? So it's kind of a choke, natural choke point. I'm not sure if a lot of people were there to in case somebody came across the bridge from the other direction, because that's where I think the army forces were at that point in time. Um, and so I'm not sure if they expected us to come from the direction we came from, but I think that they recognized that as a natural choke point, and it's, it's where a lot of people were at. And so at that at that bridge, there was there was a, a fair amount of fire that subsided after we got out of kind of that you know, call it the kill zone, call it what you will. Um, and, and unfortunately, I didn't figure it out fast enough. And our, our company gunning, who was who refused to remain with a lot of training and was traveling in a canvas skin company, uh, was shot and killed right now. As you push towards the palace, are you hearing the rest of the battalion saying they've hit the palace or? I wasn't on battalion tack, but I had, I had gotten relayed through company tack that uh, brought the company and made the palace. And, there was there's plenty of people shooting at them from outside, and there might have been some people inside. I don't know enough to talk intelligently about exactly how that went down, but I do know that by the time we got there, the at least from a perimeter security standpoint and being able to keep people from going in, the battalion had set up security and it was evacuating people out of the uh, out of the palace. They were flying in CH-46s and landing on a very, very tiny spit of grass in between buildings that, you know, talking to the, the, the pilots later on, we were able to meet the pilots and talk to them. You know, when the first time they came in, they assumed that they were going to lose, you know, the foot of their rotor blades on trees and other things that were on the OZ when they came in. But they squeezed them in, they brought some ammo, they dropped out, they picked up casualties, and they did multiple runs and, and did great things for us. So by the time we got there, that was that was already going on. So somebody, you know, the, the time essentially secured the palace, and you know, we get inside the, the walls, and it's kind of like a, a deep breath situation. It's like, wow, that was crazy. And then we're immediately tasked to go out and uh, form security around the mosque where Saddam is suspected. So as soon as we get in, head back out of the city. You've been assigned the mission at the mosque to go find Saddam because he clearly wasn't in the palace. Your, the rest of the battalion just cleared a lot. Did you think you were going to find him or did you at this point suspect it was just you were goose chasing? I, mean, I think you always, again, it's the ego portion, right? It's like, like you're going to be the guy. I, mean, I think every every Marine, every soldier that was over at this point in time, like in the back of their mind, like, yeah, I want to be the guy that catches him. And so like, regardless of how um, hopeless or doubtful it was that you'd actually be there, I think you, you, you wanted to believe it to be true. And you're excited to go 
You push out to the mosque. How many vehicles? Uh, the company pushes out. We also still had our, because uh, we, we still had some engineering uh, elements attached to us. And so along with a company's worth of Marines and AAVs, which I think was, we had 12 AAVs. Uh, we also had a, an ACE, one of the engineers armored combat earth movers, little like armored bulldozer, but the mini one. And so we had, I mean, we had, I, I think it's just a function of like not realizing, hey, engineers, you can stay at the palace. But the, or maybe it was we needed them. I, I don't know if it was a company commander's decision or not, or if it's just a function of they had been part of our convoy, and as soon as we started rolling out, they wanted to come with us. But yeah, we had, we had a, an ace with us. We got the we got the tanks back, so we had the tanks go with us. And so it was a it was a sizable force heading up towards this mosque. How far away is the mosque? Five kilometers. So again, another significant movement in downtown Baghdad. Yeah, at, at this point, luckily, though, I mean, the sun is the sun has been up. It's daylight. It's much easier to, to navigate the streets. The buildings that you're driving through, three stories, single floor, what what are what are you seeing out of your TC hatch as you drive down? Definitely multi-story uh, residential. You know, some, some five or six stories, uh, some two to three, but definitely mostly multi-story uh, residential. Obviously some markets here and there, but for the most part, it was, it was, it was residential kind of residential background. And your Marines are scanning the roofs? Are you taking fire from the roofs? Definitely taking fire, uh, whether it's through the multi-story windows, through the roofs, from the ground level, a little bit of everything. And was it small arms, heavy machine guns? Uh, small arms, medium machine guns, and lots of RPGs. So I, mean, I think I, I told you I'm sure this is great. During the day, Throughout the day, my vehicle got hit by at least three RPGs. And I think the Marines said they saw at least another four, four to five go over the top in this. Those RPG shots, were they coming from close by? Were they long range? Not long range. Um, generally close. The, the, the one I distinctly recall hitting us was actually at the mosque, and the guy fired it from 15 feet away. So let's go to the mosque. You've arrived. What have you found? What what's the scenario playing out in front of you? So at this point, we're like not sure what to do. So we have along the way, I lost an AAV that I had to leave behind to guard because one of the tanks got hit by an RPG and the turret wouldn't move, and so I got tasked with leaving security. So I left one squad uh, with the tank. So I'm down to two squads, and the rest of the company. Uh, minus this tank with my squad is now parked outside the mosque not on all sides of it but you know on the two sides of it two and a half sides of it that they kind of face back into the city um you know the other part of it was they had a cemetery on one side and, and kind of close to the river not on the river but close to it and so we were we were parked on the main streets around it uh, on the two predominant sides that face back in the city it's kind of a what do we do now we're not we're not supposed to go into the mosque. Do we just hold this? And we're trying to we're trying to figure that out. And in that in that time period, and I can't I can't even estimate how long it was. And at this part, just kind of I, I lose a little bit of my time space. The, we're getting shot at from across the street. Pretty significant fire from a multi-story building that our our forward air controller calls in an A10 gun run on the building. And our reporter took some amazing pictures of this thing getting hit. And so the, that building quieted down uh, after gun runs. I, I think that building was probably 200 meters away. So it's you know, kind of 
pretty pretty tight fit in an urban environment, doing gun runs, um, doing great things for us. Kind of calmed it down a little bit outside, and somewhere in the mix, um, I was parked along the wall of the mosque, and there was a door right next to my TC hatch, or, or you know, just even with my TC hatch that was closed and pulled up. And at some point, that door opened up. I didn't see when it opened up, um, but the Marines in the back did, and you know, they started yelling at my name. And, and I saw the Marine try and throw a grenade in. Uh, and this room, the door had a door to the outside and a door to the courtyard. They were even with each other. His grenade basically went through both doors. Um, and I saw a guy duck back in. And so I, I threw a grenade from my TC hatch to you know, hopefully try and, try and get him. And it was a, it was a good throw. And he, he stepped into the doorway as my grenade went off and, and shot an RPG at my vehicle. And was an arm around it, punched a hole right through the armor and luckily the, that blast of liquid molten metal from the RPG didn't, didn't actually hit anybody um, directly, just some shrapnel. But the Halon system goes off in the back of my AV. I, I, I saw him shoot it from you know, 15 feet away. I knew he got hit and I, I turned over my shoulder and saw nothing but brown smoke coming out of the top of the AV. Um, had no idea how bad it was, and it turns out the, the halon system had gone off in the AV to put out fires, but that also sucks all the oxygen out of the air, and so the Marines in the back are basically scrambling to get out the top to do. Um, and as the dust settles, we, we come to find out that you know, my my radio operator and the AV crewman who hands ammo up to the crew chief had taken some some minor shrapnel, comparatively speaking, um, but that everyone else was okay. I, I radioed in to my boss that we just took an RPG from the mosque and um, you know, I'm kind of waiting to see what we do next. And he then tasked me to uh, gain foothold and, and clear the mosque. How did you do that? Uh, this is one of those things where it's, uh, you know, you get to you get to take credit for what the Marines do, I guess. Is He had told me to go around the backside to gain a foothold. And so I just followed his instructions, and I, I told my my platoon sergeant, who was in my lead AV, and I had assigned my platoon sergeant to be with my with my main effort. So I knew second squad was going to be initially out of the gates. We had planned this ahead. Instead of putting my platoon sergeant with casualties, he was a he was an amazing marine and a great warrior, and I put him with my main, main effort to wait the main effort and to alleviate that squad with decision making responsibilities a little bit, and to keep to ensure that that squad leader would push the fight. And so my platoon sergeant was in was always in the lead vehicle. I was always in the middle the middle vehicle. And I got on the net and I said, I think it was uh, Apache three alpha. This is Apache three. Go around the backside of the mosque and gain foothold. And that's all I said on the radio. And we went on the backside of the mosque, and I had to run to keep up for the rest of the day. Um, they had by the time I dismounted my vehicle, they second squad had dismounted, found a, a whole door in the in the, uh, the outer wall uh on that backside of the mosque there was an enemy medium machine gun shooting at them through the door uh, they they suppressed the machine gun took a small shot with a novel explosive round uh, killed the machine gunner entered the compound and immediately pushed right away from the, the main the main building because the closest building within the compound was to the right and it was essentially like a two-story dormitory tech room or minimal like squad bay. You get in there in like just a big open rooms, uh, kind of more like two-story squad bay. But by the time I got in there, they'd done already that, all of that. Uh, and all I had to say on the radio was, 
go around the backside of the mosque and get a foothold. It's not concerning. So you guys sounded like you were a well-oiled machine at that point. <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't say we were well-oiled. Uh, I would say that we had we had planned thoroughly. Um, during the course of training, I uh, I got to know my squad leaders. Like I said, I had a full six months of training with them. And our company commander insisted that we were going to Iraq. He wasn't going to train for boats. And we spent hours and hours and hours attacking fortified positions and going through the recon isolate doing foothold since the objective all of the steps of attacking fortified positions which apply to a trench system and they apply to a fortified building or urban environment part of that and part of generally speaking any platoon attack that you're trained is you have an assault support and security element and i was able to recognize that just the attitudes and personalities of my squad leaders my second squad leader, who was the most junior, who was a corporal, the other two were sergeants, was the most aggressive. He was willing to take the most risks, but he wasn't reckless. And so, you know, somewhere during the course of training, he became my assault element. And then, you know, my other two squad leaders support and security based on their personalities as well. And so, at least for the initial, when the ramps drop and we go into something, they knew what their initial task was going to be. And that gave me flexibility um, in the attack. And in the actual, on April 10th, as soon as we're going ramps down, we're actually dismounting. That it was easy enough for me to communicate what the initial construction was, and everyone knew what they're supposed to do. Because we, again, recon, isolate, gain a foothold, seize the objective. When I say gain a foothold, necessarily the implied task to that, that squad leader and my platoon sergeant was identify the breach point, how are we getting into this place, the found the door, isolate that from the rest of everything else, and do what you need to do to gain the foothold to get everybody else inside the compound. Um, we had trained that over and over and over again. So at least that first step, they knew. And then from there, that, that gave me time to get on the ground, assess the situation, see, like, okay, is this working? Do we need any rudder steers? And for the most part, they didn't need rudder steers. I gave them a few along the way in terms of they were going to go left and I said, hold here, go right kind of things. You know, it came time to leave that first building and go to the next one is on our way to, you know, on our way to the main, the main mosque building. But for the most part, they ran with it. And that training, you know, it was, it was good enough to where they knew what their tasks were going to be on initial contact. And that bought me time as a, as a leader and decision maker to evaluate and make sure that that's working. And luckily for me, it worked. I, I didn't have to make, I didn't have to like keep making new decisions along the way because it, it, it worked. And I, like I said, I don't, for the most part, run to people. You, your Marines have come in the Bosque or, or into the compound. They've turned left and seized turned right. The right, 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 right. Yeah. And they've seized the first building. Mm -hmm. What did they find in that first building? There was, right at the end of that building is where that machine gunner was. Uh, and for the most part, they didn't find, I don't think anyone else in that first building. And we, there was another smaller building between that and the main, main, the main building. And I think we bypassed that actually and just went straight to the main building. Um, and from there, there was a, there's a downstairs, there's the main building, there was upstairs with the roof, there's a lot of different parts. And you know, second platoon was tasked to follow and support. And so they, they started to show up 
and I started to, to deal with their, so their, their platoon command was a combat replacement for Shane, who showed up, I think, two or three days prior. You know, he's a great Marine, great Marine officer, but he's also two days on the job. And I had worked with the squad leaders, and so I did a lot of talking with the squad leaders and talking with them about where I needed help. But the way we had trained is, if you're, if you're tasked to follow in the soon, uh, then you take over at some point. Whenever that, that first platoon in can't go any further, you kind of pass through them, and you take over, and you become in charge. Uh, whereas following support means that initial leader maintains command, and you do what he needs to help. And they were tasked to follow and support. And so they, you know, when I'm told that they're coming in to follow and support, I know that my company commander is implicitly telling me, you're still in charge, just finish what you need, and here's more bodies to help you out. And so help work with him to task his squad leaders on closing some gaps and looking in some places we hadn't looked. And I don't think there was a lot. I, I wasn't involved in the direct firefights inside the compound, other than you know seeing that the, the, the small end killed that main machine gun. Uh, but I think we ended up, by the time we pushed to the temple building, they didn't expect us to come in around the backside. They actually didn't expect us to come in the building. I think they all just ran for cover. And I think the most of the you know, 20 to 25 EPWs we took were hiding in the base and found them. And there was a whole stash of uh, RPG rockets, RPG launchers, medium machine gun ammo, uh, medium machine guns, AK-47s, just a whole whole litany of uh, small arms RPGs that we found in in the mosque. The prisoners you took, the machine gunner, the guy that shot the RPG at you, were they in uniform or were they in civilian attire? Civilian was this the first time your Marines had encountered folks in civilian attire shooting at you? I think it might have been. I know that our company, uh, other elements of our company um, along the way to Baghdad, we were, we were involved in you know, skirmish along the way. Um, nothing significant or substantial compared to this. But my platoon, I think, was in the, the tail element of the company that day. And by the time we got up there, we weren't really being shot at. But we, it was clear that there was no there was no army, and, and so the, the closer we got to Baghdad, the more it was it was apparent that people were going to be shooting at us. Not like knowing that ahead of time, did that make your job of discerning and making decisions easier? A non-factor. Um, I was always taught hostile intent, hostile act. You know, and if you're in a rate, if you're in an eight-hour running gunfight through the streets of Baghdad, and, and gunfire has been going on for a while, and there's a person running around with an AK-47. That's a hostile intent, hostile act at that point. Um, you know, the guy that's 15 feet away uh, with an RPG pointed at your vehicle, <laughs> that's a no-brainer, right? After you've consolidated, what happens to the company? What happens to Nick? Uh, so we loaded up all the prisoners in the bucket of the, the ACE, the Armored Combat Earth Mover. So it actually turned out to be useful that we brought it. I mean, we had, we had piled Marines, you know, AVs had, had been damaged and you know, piling Marines into you know, AVs to link the other ones back home and, and finally get back to the palace. And at that point, we were the last company back in. I know that, I think Bravo Company might have stayed at the palace and done some limited things around the palace. Charlie Company, you've spoken with Carl, they, they pushed out to another part of Baghdad, kind of doing the same thing, go, go look for Saddam. Uh, and I think we were the last ones back. And so we were, we were told just to get some rest. And you know, later that evening, we got put on the line. You know, for the, you know, we took our, our 
our rotation through the, the battalion defense. Uh, given the way the palace was set up, one company at a time who was able to handle the defense with the you know, very tall, thick concrete walls with limited access points to get in. Uh, and, and so the, you know, it didn't take the entire battalion the defense to defend that thing. And so they were, they were doing company rotations through the defensive perimeter. Uh, and we, we picked up ours right as the sun was going down. So, but like that day, I mean, we get back, it was this pretty significant um, adrenaline dump uh, after kind of run, you know, eight hour running gunfight through the streets of Baghdad and then get back. And like I said, along the way, our company gunnery sergeant, who was you know, one of the most amazing Marines I've ever met, uh, former army ranger with a combat jump in the Grenada, like the guy was invincible, right? And so for, to, to lose him was a significant emotional blow to the company. Uh, and so there's a lot of, you know, just trying to process that and then also quickly push the reset button in terms of prep the vehicles in case we need to go back out, get them cleaned out, you know, restock for ammo, uh, you know, weapons to yourself, that whole thing, uh, and then get some rest because we're not sure what our next task is going to be. As you look back, what stands out on that day the most? Yeah, just training in the basics can prepare you for most, most anything. I was told that you know, I was I was like the ice man on the radio after the fact. I was I was talking on the radio like they're talking. I didn't feel that way. I felt you know at times I felt overwhelmed. At times I was scared shitless. At times I was hyper focused on a task that made the rest of the world disappear around me. You know, you can make a matter during training. It said like before you guys ever talk on the radio, take a deep breath. And that day, like that that lesson, you know, came back into my mind. I was like before I talk on the radio that day, I just always take a deep breath. And everyone else said I sounded very calm. I didn't feel that way. I didn't think I was acting that way. That's what I was told. Um, the, you know, the, the ease of saying, you know, go on the backside of the mosque and gain a foothold and how easy that made my job. Um, but it was, that was predicated on hours and hours and hours of training the basics that allowed us to be able to do that. At that. And so the, you know, if you train for the basics, it will, it will buy you time when you need it to be able to make decisions and, and modify the plan and make adjustments on the fly. But you can always rely. Do any of your Marines stand out from that day? Yeah, the my my platoon sergeant, like I said, because he was, I had to run to keep up in large part because I, he was with my main effort. And uh, he was he was driving them. He was kicking in doors and, and driving them. Uh, the assault section leaders, uh, or the assault assault team, I should say. I'm sorry, they're the ones that put the basically put themselves in the you know in the doorway, funnel fire, funnel fire, and, and, and launched a small explosive round of a you know, machine gun. And then each of my squad leaders, for for not only knowing their role but communicating with each other within the scope of their, their assigned role, um, without me having to micromanage. I mean, you know. And, as a platoon commander, oftentimes that's the visibility you're going to have is you're going to have the people you interact with. And so, like, by saying squad leaders and, and you know, and the assault team and the platoon sergeant, I don't mean to dismiss anything else with platoon, but they did amazing things. They were, they were fantastic. They did everything I asked them and then, and then some. Most of my interaction that day, though, was taking decisions that I wanted to make and communicating with those people. And more often than not, a decision that I thought we should make 
they they were already five steps ahead of me. They were already leaning into the same course of action and making the same decisions. And it was just me affirming, yes, go here. Nick, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us on the Spear today. Your story about the effectiveness of combat leadership and building a strong team, I think, will, will resonate with our listeners. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.